Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. What was it about shoes that intrigued wearers and observers in the 18th century and continues to do so for us today? Shoes have a creative, often playful expression of style that transforms craft into art and transports the seemingly mundane into the realm of the extraordinary. Fashion transforms both how we walk and our overall carriage. It has the power to influence how we feel about ourselves and the world we inhabit. It forms the permeable boundary between who we are and who we want to be. My guest today is the woman who wrote those words, Kimberly Alexander. She teaches material culture at the University of New Hampshire and has curated a number of museum exhibitions. Most recently, an exhibition now running at the Massachusetts Historical Society, Fashioning the New England Family, which will go on until April 6th and looks well worth a visit. She is also, also the author of Treasures Afoot, Shoe Stories from the Georgian Era, published by the Johns Hopkins University Press in 2018. And that is the focus of our conversation today. Kimberly, thank you for being on Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. Which is shoes or fashion? I, uh, because <laughs> I, I, uh, I followed you on Twitter for years and wanted to have uh, a conversation about material culture. Uh, I knew you were working about something about shoes, but you know what? I'm not sure that I took it that seriously. And then I yeah. read this great book, which is beautifully put together by Johns Hopkins uh, with how many, you just told me how many illustrations, 100, 110? 100, 100 illustrations in and color. 10 black and whites. Yes, yes it's, uh, yeah. it's fantastic. So uh, Thank you. You make a very persuasive case in what I just read um, for the importance of fashion, and we're going to get back to that uh, probably towards the end of our conversation. But how did you end up focusing on shoes? Well, it's one of those, um, I guess, what you, if it's possible to have an origin story for <laughs> for your book um, and your research. I uh, was chief curator at Strawberry Bank Museum, and I was doing the research in all different types of, of areas. I got to work with archaeology, and I was able to work with ceramics, and painting, um, and also textiles and mm. fashion. And there was a pair of shoes, uh, or actually one shoe, in fact. It's the shoe on the cover of the book, which... Which is a beautiful shoe. It is a beautiful shoe. And yet, if you look at it closely, you also see that it's very damaged. Very. You can see... Where the where the silk uh, brocade has worn away, um, it's definitely you know seen some use, seen some age and some wear. But inside this shoe um, was a label, huh. and it was for a shoemaker, uh, a pair of shoemakers, um, uh, Rideout and Davis, whose business was located near Aldgate in London. And I could read that, and it suddenly just opened this whole world of questions right through this label and this beautiful this beautiful shoe i've always been able to see past all the uh the bumps and bruises and the shattering of of silk to see the the object hopefully as um probably as the original owner might have seen it and so suddenly it became this story that i was very interested in finding out about and so over the course of eight years, yes, eight years, <laughs> I looked at hundreds of pairs of shoes uh, in at least, I think, 30 different collections. Wow. Um, and uh, so I got to really know the shoes. And what I found is that they hold these stories, uh, all different types of stories, happy stories of weddings and uh, but also not so uh, happy stories about um, maybe infirmity or uh, feet that are aged with time and have bunions. And um, hmm. 
because shoes, in fact, are this one article of clothing that hold that hold the shape of their wearer hmm. long, long after the wearer has has passed along into the next next realm. Um, and so, the 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 book itself, there'll be many names that people recognize. I get to talk about Martha Washington's gorgeous wedding shoes, which I had one of those aha moments when I saw those in person at Mount Vernon. And I was able to talk about George Washington and his relationship with his London shoemaker. Which, as which, it was with most purveyors, was bad. Um, at least... Well, it, well, it, was, it was good for about the first 12 years. <laughs> he, was definitely a def- he was definitely a difficult client. Yeah. That's for certain. He's a difficult client um, and he's a difficult boss. Uh, reading his yes. letters is always hilarious in terms of... Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah. He knew what he wanted. Yes, and he, he did. to get it. <laughs> I think it's, and so you know we have people uh, that, that are well known to us, and yet looking at their shoes gives us another sort of uh, window into their lives. And then many individuals who we've never heard of, um, who are anonymous, who if it weren't for the survival of their shoes, would, and by this I mean women, mm-hmm. we would know their only maybe their birth date and their death date perhaps if they got married, and how many children. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the survival of these shoes gives us a chance to start pulling together stories from women's lives that have been otherwise would be lost. So, So these are some of the exciting things. The more I started to look into this topic, the richer I found it to be, these sort of hidden stories that are sort of captured inside this, this shell that is worn on one's, one's foot. So let's talk about some of the technical details of 18th century shoes. Uh, sure. I had to learn a word which I had never heard before. I have to admit that. Cordwainer, um, yes. which means shoemaker, I guess. Yes, uh, it's, it, it's, yes it, it does. People will be as astonished to find out it is not cobbler. Um, please, yes. Please explain never why not. shoemaker cobbler. <laughs> why not? I, I'd be happy to. I will. I'd be happy to explain that. So the idea of the, the shoemaker or the cordwainer, um, and both were used uh, in um, colonial America. Although shoemakers started to really take precedence over the English term of more English term of cordwainer, oh, okay. but both uh, shoemakers and cordwainers worked with what you'd call new leather. So uh, a new shoe, creating a new shoe. Cobblers work with old leather. That's the simplest way of describing it. So if it's a shoe that needs repair, uh, that needs to be uh, resold, um, that could be a cobbler. However, in New England, um, for example, you have uh, shoemakers who do a bit of both. Hmm. But uh, it is important when we're talking about historic trades today – is to make is to make sure that we don't call a shoemaker a cobbler. They'll be very upset. <laughs> so the in shoes uh, are made both in uh, in the 18th century. Um, you chronicle the the life of shoes. Um, mm-hmm. So many of them are made in England, and then uh, you chronicle their modification and as part of their first use sometimes or as mm-hmm. part of their reuse. So yeah. what does a cordwainer in England have to do to make shoes? I saw that already by, even in the early part of this uh, period, there's already a piecework system involved with shoemaking. Yeah. So let's explain how all that works to get together. Well, I, I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah. There are uh, a number of uh, just brilliant academics and scholars uh, such as uh, D.A. Segudo, who has written really just amazing works about how shoes were made and, and, and constructed. So, and luckily he guided me a lot in understanding sort of the process. But I think the, if it, it might be useful to take two examples from the sure. book. Um, one is the uh, the shoemaking family of John Hosen's son, yes, who are in London and have hang their uh, their sign at the Sign of the Rose in Cheapside in London, and are responsible for exporting thousands and thousands of their <laughs> shoes to 
the colonies and also to the West Indies. And you will find in I, I, I've, I've put, started to put together a list of all the collections of which you find John Hose's shoes, and I know that there are many, many, many more, because he labeled his shoes starting about 1750, which makes it easy hmm. to take a look at. But we have his own testimony where he talks about, uh, for many years, selling um, trunk after trunk after trunk of shoes to the colonies. So... How did he do this? He had what would be called, he'd probably have a base shop, you know, like a shoe shop that you would go into. You could be fitted and sized if you were the more, obviously, more affluent customer. Um, some work would be done in the shop. I'm not sure of the size of, uh, of his actual uh, sort of working area. Mm -hmm. I do know that he lived over the shop as well. But the, the importance of piecework that you mentioned means that you're able to sort of, if you will, farm out all the different parts of, of, of shoemaking. So you have some who will be carving the wooden heels for women's shoes mm -hmm. and others who will be cutting out uh, pieces of leather for the soles or the, or the vamps, which is the top part that covers your foot. Mm -hmm. You'll have women who may be doing the embroidery also for special order uppers. Um, You'll also be buying things like silk brocades or silk damasks from perhaps Spitalfields in London to cover the tops of the shoes for the most fashionable. And by doing the piecework, you're paying people a pittance for their work, which they then get paid only by the piece, as it suggests. John Hose tells us <laughs> in testimony uh, that happens later in front of Parliament that he had 300 people working for that's him. just a, I mean it's a factory it's not a shop I mean but it's it's exactly. a, it's a huge enterprise it's huge. yeah it is it's, it's absolutely huge and you can see in that context why it was difficult if not impossible certainly in the the first you know half of the 17th century it was very difficult for American shoemakers to compete yeah it's it's they didn't have the resources. It's very helpful, I think, for people to understand that because um, it falls into a very strange area that we're not familiar with about, is this a factory or is it not a factory? It's not steam powered. It's not water powered. That's right. It's not an um, assembly line. But at the same time, it's not just one little old man sitting in the window of his shop cutting leather. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. It's, uh, it's and, this, and yeah, go on. No, 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 you're exactly right. And I think, and I think that is, you know, you have, and again, of course, the difference between an urban shoemaker like yes. a John Hose in London versus a New Hampshire shoemaker like Samuel Lane uh, in Stratham, New Hampshire, mm -hmm. who fits more of the model of what we think of as the, the sole proprietor. And yet what we find out is that he also hired his neighbors uh, around him in this little community in New Hampshire, not too far from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to cut out leather for soles, to make stacked heels, to carve women's heels for shoes during the winter months when they weren't doing agriculture. Yeah, I just say that it, there's a lot of talk these days, you can hear the podcast about people doing the side hustle. Um, yeah. But yes. Samuel Lane and the sort of the, you described the 10 foot shops of New England. They're so, yes. they're such brilliant entrepreneurial. I mean, economists should really study these. Maybe they have as the ways that people adapt to changing economies. Um, yes. you like an agricultural society, but people have other skills so they can do multiple things. It's only a 10 foot shop. They can set up in their backyard. If they stop, yep. if someone dies, they can repurpose it. It's not a big deal. Exactly. It's just it's just a brilliant sort of side hustle, or maybe it's the main hustle, but it's very I don't know how it's like a Lego set of entrepreneurism. I I, I I think that this is something that actually does deserve more more study. Some work terrific work in this was done in the uh nineteen 30s and 40s, uh, particularly related to the shoe industry and Lynn. But mm -hmm. it, I think it bears a, a, another a, a reevaluation yeah, because I think so. yeah. things that have come, come to light since then. And the 10-footer was like this, you know, this vernacular 
piece building, one room. And, it, and you know, it's funny, they're, they were never all really 10 feet. They might be 11 by 12, but it was a very <laughs> handy, handy thing to use. And they were easily transportable. You, you know, you could, I mean, people were already moving whole houses by oxen on, with oxen and rollers yeah. and things. So moving a 10 footer, no big deal. You can still drive around parts of any part of Massachusetts and New Hampshire and see 10 footers, as you said, that have been repurposed to something else. Mm-hmm. I'm always, making my husband stop on the side of the road because I see one located in the middle of a wood and I'm going to go take a look at it. And in fact, some of, some of the photos in my book are from that kind of, it's like, wait, stop, there's a 10 footer um, because they were so flexible. And you have examples though, fortunately, that survived at the, uh, at the Lynn Museum in Lynn, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a 10-footer right in their courtyard. There is a 10-footer at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. Um, and uh, Sam Lane makes reference to where he makes his shoes. And I think in the early years it was probably in the house. But later on there is an outbuilding that was specifically designated for his, his shoemaking. So, so yes, it was a very, uh, very... Um, it was ubiquitous, you know, everywhere you would find it. It was a little shop. It didn't have to be for shoes, but it, those are the ones we tend to have that have survived. And so when they were working with the crops, you know, working with the livestock, um, whatever else, Sam Mullane's neighbors would also engage in his shoemaking efforts. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a phenomenal bit of community. And, and I call, I've been calling it the home shop system. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I it's it's yeah. it reminded me very much of a, an economist I was reading about who was discussing the Amish and observing that uh no Amish farmer ever far only farms. They always are doing something else. They make furniture or yeah. something else. You know, it's it, I think that's probably a pattern of all uh, in really early America than we when realize. Um Yeah. So exactly. So what's required? What I mean, I was, I was, um, I don't know, surprised. Charmed is not the right word uh, to find that dog skin was sometimes used for uh, for shoes. Uh, lots of different types of leathers were used according to need. Um, so right. what? There's you've already mentioned the carving. We've got the leathers. Um, yeah. The embroidery. That's kind of. Who's doing the embroidery? Because I was a little unclear on that. Sometimes it's done in London, right. but are some people? But are people immediately when they receiving a shoe? Do they begin to modify it if it's a woman? A woman's shoe? Not necessarily. Not necessarily immediately. No. But let me just actually first. Let me go back to just to dog skin. Sure. That is a term that it actually tends to be used for a poor quality leather. Oh, okay. And um, and uh, uh, Segudo, who's the uh, uh, curator emeritus of, of the um, boot and shoemakers at Colonial Williamsburg has not found any evidence in his 45 years of research of anyone actually using dog skin in this country for shoes. That mm-hmm. doesn't that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. But uh, but I, when I, George I, Washington mentions that in one of his um, his uh, missives to his shoemaker, it's a way of saying. They were poor quality and they didn't Got it. last. I was just so, imme- I immediately assumed that with a surplus of dogs in urban London, uh, dead dogs well, make n- yeah. leaving nothing to waste. You know, there you have yes. it. And they may well have. I'm just saying about the colonial yeah. from the uh, colonial perspective. I mean, in London, we know they were using pigskin, you know, also for mm-hmm. shoes and things like that. So, like as you say, letting nothing go to waste. And- um, the one before we go on, I know that somebody is probably listening and saying that they had heard that shoes are made are not made differently for the right and left foot. Because um, I think uh, D. A. Segudo told me that was the most common question asked at the uh, shoemakers in Williamsburg. Um, yeah. So could you just what, could you explain why the 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 myth behind that or the dispel that myth? Yeah. Sure. Well, the the idea of the the straight, what we call, they're called straight lasted. So mm-hmm. when they're not distinguishing between right and left, and it mean it meant first of all they were easier to make for the um, for the shoemaker. But it's not to say that it's not that 
customers hadn't had access to right and left shoes before. Yes, they had. And in fact, occasionally you will find for somebody who has special uh, foot needs, you will find a right and left made. For example, if one foot is much larger than the other or one foot is much wider. Hmm. So it was more a question of convenience. And one of the things that's, that's fascinating me is that even long after, you know, in the 18th century, um, you start seeing in the sort of the Regency period, uh, the women's dancing shoes that are labeled left and right, mm-hmm. um, and you start to see more of that. But even as late as the 1850s and 60s, I've seen women's straight-lasted shoes used for weddings, although it was no longer it – was, it was considered to be um, stylish. Hmm somehow so it's a, it's an interesting interesting perspective mm-hmm. um the other thing about it is that for women's shoes if you have no right and left you can get better wear out of your shoes true yeah you can, you can swap them yeah and so often those who were middling sorts who couldn't have multiple pairs of fancy shoes could could preserve their shoes by switching them between right and left so there was also a practical advantage um, for many as well. Yeah, I believe I believe uh, it was explained to me also that for men's shoes, the quality of leather was such that very quickly it would conform to your feet. Um, exactly. And you would have uh, it would then be it would be matched, but you were doing the matching yourself. Um, That's right, and yeah, and again, if, if we're, whether we're talking about leather shoes or. Um, fabric shoes, wool shoes, silk shoes, all of these things have a different uh, a different wearing quality, of course, too, and depending on who's who's wearing them. But um, and I think you asked about oh, the embroidery. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So so in London, yes, you would have many, many women working on embroidery patterns, just like they do on men's waistcoats. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, some recent discoveries, the uh, Ladies Repository, Ladies Magazine, found some 1775 sh- uh, patterns for embroidering on your shoes. <laughs> this could be done in a variety of ways. The woman who, the owner herself, could easily get patterns and embroider them on her own. There were also professional embroiderers who would do the work. And in... Um, in America, I found examples of local women who would do embroidery for uppers. It's just casual mentions in account books mm-hmm. for shoemakers that somebody would bring in um, their own cloth to attach to his leather, which would indicate that it was a, some sort of a special shoe. And in Haverhill, New Hampshire, um, way up in the North Country, the, there uh, is a, a shop. It was a shop the uh, General Montgomery shop, and I've looked through his account books, and there was a shoemaking family, a tanning family called the Lads, and there was a sister, an unmarried sister, who took care of embroidering uppers, and then the brothers would make them into into shoes on request. So, so uh, can again, I ask a... It's another- can I ask a stupid, te- stupid technical question? Does the embroidery go? Is that sewed onto a leather? Um, what's the upper part of the shoe? You just use that. Uh, ter- onto the vamp. Onto the vamp. Yes. Is that sewed onto the vamp? Mm-hmm. It's not just a. It's, the whole vamp is not cloth it, or wool. It's right. It needs to be. It needs to have some, at least some level, type of lining. Okay. It Got may it. not all. It, you know, if it's a cloth shoe, the whole thing may just be lined with uh, a linen cloth but it, it the embroidery is going to be backed on something okay. absolutely All right. um yeah and then it's going to become in fact in the in um in treasures of foot if you look in the wedding chapter i've got it you'll open these shoes that uh were embroidered by the edward sisters mm-hmm. um from connecticut historical i'm trying yep. to find the page 51 the page here they are yes there you go so and those were um embroidered by uh, the sisters, the Edwards, who had a long tradition, the whole family had, uh, of women, of doing high, high-quality uh, needlework and embroidery. And these, the sisters and, of Jonathan Edwards, for those theologically inclined. Um, yeah, yes, yes, yes. So, so, 
here uh, Hannah Edwards is preparing to marry Seth um, and uh, Wetmore, and they're working on these shoes. And I've not. This is one pair I've not. I've not seen in person, but apparently, you can distinguish. And if you look closely, you can actually see it. Two different hands of embroidery. So they probably worked on them together to get them finished yeah. before her wedding, the which is a great story. Yeah, the fronds are different, slightly different yes, co- color exactly. and stitching. Yeah, and stitching, you can see it. Yeah. Of the f- so that's a wonderful story about you know about women working together to get these things done. You yeah. know, which you can just imagine that they're sitting in the in the in the parlor. We actually know the house that they were living in and probably working on this before she went off to her husband's that's, house that he was having built. Parenthetically, that's the beauty of, of, of material culture when it can be located to a place like that. All of a sudden, we've got a novelistic detail, which we know is exactly. we can really demonstrate. It's wonderful. So we know where they were sitting. We know where they we know where they were. We yeah. know most likely what room they were sitting in. We know the yep. two women who were there. We know where she got married, and then we know the house that she moved in after she got married. It's fantastic. And those are the things that with the shoes that we can start to, you know, to really imagine and or not imagine. Actually, it's there. It's, it's the fact. Yeah, We've got right. the documents. It, it, so, it doesn't um, even take that much historical imagination to put it together. It just, it's really, right. it's just, that's amazing. Um, let's talk about weddings. Uh, you point out that, well, in some ways, it's very charming to see how uh, in many cultural ways, weddings, people were freer about weddings back then. Uh, yes. There was not a tyranny of what a wedding had to look like. Um, so let's talk about that. Uh, we have Queen Victoria to blame for the modern, the hegemonic wedding ceremony. (laughs) But not the white dress. I always need to point that out. There have been many, 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 many white, uh, wedding dresses. Um, in fact, there's some excellent examples, uh, at the Victorian Albert of wedding dresses that were white silk from the 17, I think there's a great one from the 1760s. But here you've got, um, a, you've got an emerald green silk damask wedding dress in, from the Massachusetts yes. Historical. It's fantastic. I mean, it's amazing that, that people did yes. that. You know, you just, it's, it's always contrary to like our cultural guardrails almost. It's kind of funny. Yes. Well, and actually that was the example I was going to use, if that's all right. Let's go um, right ahead, yeah. Um, so because this is another one of those terrific stories, um, the Rebecca Taylor Biles wedding dress and shoes are right now on view at oh. the Massachusetts Historical Society as part of the exhibit. And they, uh, those particular shoes were the first, uh, one of the first items that brought me to do research at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And they're known, of course, there for their amazing documents and manuscripts and the Adams papers and Jefferson's drawings. But the the MHS has a fabulous and little-known textile collection. And I was so thrilled to get to be the guest curator for this exhibit. And so I saw the green shoes, Rebecca Taylor Biles' wedding shoes. And in the process of working with Ann Bentley, the curator of art and artifacts at MHS, she said, oh, well, maybe you'd be interested in this, too. And she pointed to this long textile box, and we opened it up, and inside was this green, emerald green silk damask wedding dress. Is it is that, it as fresh-looking as it looks in the photograph? Yes. Because it looks like it was made it yesterday. Is, it's, it's shocking. It, yeah. it is absolutely Amazing! I've really never seen anything like it, and hmm. it was—it's a Spitafield silk, so it's high. It was high quality when it was purchased in, you know, and used for her wedding in 1747. Mm-hmm. And it was then remade, the top bodice, probably in the 1840s, for a relative. But the skirt—you can still see this expanse of silk, and the shoes were of the same silk. And so now we have, you know, we know that the silk was probably, well, I'm almost entirely certain that the silk was designed by Anna Maria Garthwaite. And you mentioned Zara Ashanlin's book earlier, Mm -hmm. um, and she focuses on Anna Maria Garthwaite, who was a designer for Spitafields. Well, this dress was probably also designed by Hmm. Anna Maria Garthwaite for Spitafields. It would have been the height of fashion in 1747, it's none of this, you know, again, one of these myths that, that there was this huge time lag in styles between what was happening 
in Britain and what was happening in the colonies. It's the same as today. If you had the money, you could get it. And hmm. she was wealthy, and they got what she wanted. But so now we know that where her the material came from, the inside of her her wedding shoes are stamped with the name of the maker mm-hmm. on the inside. We know that she was ma- when she was married. We know she was married at King's Chapel. We know who she married, and I was even able to get the <laughs> the weather on that day by looking <laughs> at ancillary journals. So suddenly you've got this whole again this whole story that's being told by by these garments and the wonderful thing is that um as ann bentley told me nobody has looked at that dress in at least 45 years wow yeah so when she took the lid off and i'm looking at the dress it's a serious catch your breath yeah aha moment yeah you you can just feel all of the old uh I don't know, memories well, that are sort of encapsulated in this. I mean, it, what could be more intimate in some ways? I mean, it's pub, It's a very yeah. public dress, and yet mm-hmm. it's it's intimate and and literally close to all the, the most, some of the most important human emotions. It's just, yes. it's, incre- <laughs> it's incredible. Um, exactly. It's incredible. So um, what, um, oh. yeah, go ahead. May I may I tell you one more? Of course, of, of course. Wedding wedding shoes story, if yeah, I may. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because uh, it's, I was able to see, thanks to the uh, the very terrific auspices of uh, Susan Showaller and Amanda Isaac at Mount Vernon, I was able to see Martha Washington's wedding shoes in yeah. person a few years ago, and. The, when you see them photographed, you know they're, they're purple, which is a very hard color. Again, we're dealing with pre pre chemical dyes, so these are all plant and and animal mineral dyes, and so they've been on view for a long time, and they they're fairly faded. They imagine they they were originally a pretty flashy purple with silver gilt, mm-hmm. uh, silver metallic trim, and all of that's wonderful. But when I look down inside the shoes. You can see Martha Washington's, the prints of her feet, her toes, <laughs> at the top of the shoes. And that was so amazing to think that these are the shoes she's wearing on her wedding day. Yeah. And what are the imprints because she was nervous and she curls her toes like some of us do, you know? Mm-hmm. or. Was it because she was dancing and the shoes were a little big and they slipped or because he was tall and she was trying to reach up? Hmm. But suddenly there's this element of this personal, as you say, very, very personal, intimate moment that's captured on the inside of her wedding shoes. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it just adds another part, even though we think we know everything there is to know about or the biography of bibliography is so long for the Washingtons. And yet something like this can open just one of the small window mm-hmm. into, into their lives. The, um, we, we talked a little bit about this before, um, at the beginning, but you, so there's a hundred pictures in the book and how many different, you went to 30 different repositories. Uh, yes. Yes, I did. How many pairs of shoes did you look at? Do you have a, an idea? You know, I actually never, I didn't count. Um, but I would say between trips that I've made, I mean, this is a project that at one point I just had to say, okay, you have to stop because there are so many stories that, and shoes that didn't make it into the book. Um, I would say I easily, I looked at hundreds of pairs of shoes. Huh. That's, and as you say, textiles don't survive. Right. Uh, they have been, they've faded, they've been thrown away, they've been composted for all I know. Um, right. I've, a lot just, end up in the privy. They <laughs> end up in the privy. Um, they get repurposed into various ways. Yeah. Um, I I just have been reading more than anyone should have to about hunting shirts for a project I've just finished. Oh. And, yeah, well, they're yeah. like three hunting shirt experts in the world, and there are about four existing hunting shirts. 
So yes, I, well, I I, I um, was able to hear Neil Hurst talking yeah, about exactly. his shirts yeah. just a few weeks ago. Yeah, so, okay. um, um, so, so yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I've yes. been drawing on Neil's uh, research. So um, yeah, they don't survive, and I guess they, right. why would they? They're in some ways they were a very ephemeral object. Um, yeah. they're a, they're a temporary object. And yet these survive, um, obvi- the w- wedding shoes, you can understand they, they survive in the story, but it, it says something right. about the longevity of, of these, these wood and leather constructions that there's so many to find. Yes. And it also tells us, you know, that when I, when I'm working with my students, I, um, material culture students, well, my history students too. So, so, so think about it, you know, who's in the story? Who's telling the story mm-hmm. and who's missing from the story? So when I think of shoes, okay, there are a lot of these beautiful, dainty silk shoes. So the question is, why do we have all of those? Well, yes, they were special occasion shoes, most often for weddings or perhaps, you know, the I danced with George Washington shoes mm-hmm. that you keep, right? Mm-hmm. And and people can relate to that because um, we do the same thing now. And shoes are fairly easy to keep, too. Yeah, But those aren't. Those aren't your everyday shoes. Those aren't your Nikes that you wore to run, you know, that you did your first 5K in. Some people keep them, but not all of them. You're not going to necessarily keep your Wellingtons. Mm-hmm. Um, you're keeping your special occasion shoes. And so we have a skewed picture in collections about, and this is not only shoes, but textiles, about what people wore. And it tends to be things that were saved from an earlier part of one's life before time has brought whatever ravages it might bring to you um, in changing of your, your feet, your body, your posture, whatever. These are beautiful examples. And what we find, though, over the years, I think in the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years, the, that there's more interest in every man and every woman. Mm-hmm. And there's actually much less that we can find about that. Mm-hmm. So, so what's missing from the story? We have silk shoes and we have leather shoes. The leather holds up well. In some cases, in men's shoes, we have almost we have very few because they just wore them till, as you say, they fell apart. But what about the wool shoes? One of the things we find in the historic record, in the newspapers and the account books, and the, the sales advertisements were for wool shoes, known as stuffed shoes hmm. or calamanco shoes. Those are almost non-existent. Uh, they're very, very hard to come by, I should say. Um, and that's because wool is great for moths, mm-hmm. for vermin. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't always hold up through the test of time. And in some cases, wool shoes were more everyday shoes, so they just got worn to pieces. So there's, we actually find that wool shoes were the most commonly worn by hmm. women during this time period. But if you were to look at what's in museums, that's you wouldn't find that. And so one of my big tasks is a whole chapter on the importance of Calamanco shoes because you just don't really see them. And I had trouble illustrating. So they're the, they're the most ubiquitous shoe and the most un, uh, at the time and the most uncommon shoe to find now. Exactly. And exactly. And in fact, a pair came up at auction of these red broadcloth shoes mm-hmm. at Skinner. Yeah. That years ago would have probably not been a big, such a big deal. Now you'll pay as much for those as you will for a fancy pair of silk brocade shoes. Hmm. Because these are vernacular made. They show a New England tradition of shoemaking. Um as opposed to a London tradition. And uh, and so they've become more valuable for us to understand um, how how everyday, uh, everyday life was. How much did they sell for at auction? I believe they were over $5,000. Okay. So um, for the, pair of shoes. the market for antique shoes is, is not bad. Um, it's not, it's not bad. <laughs> it's yeah. not bad. In fact, it's actually very good. Friends who've been collecting for a long time, so there used to be a time you could pick these things up. <laughs> right. You know, silk brocade shoes for a couple hundred bucks. Now you're looking at easily five to, I think there was a beautiful pair that recently sold for like $12,000 or more. So wow. it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's pricey. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
I, one of the things I was wondering is uh, how did Kimberly do the, did you just have a cork board with pictures on them? I mean, how, how long does it take you to stare at one of these things? Uh, how do you take notes about it? Do you, uh, are you pulling out a dictaphone like a doctor and, 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 and talking at your impressions about it? what, how does this work? It's, it's, it's a combination of all of those things. I mean, I think, you know, the, uh, if, first of all, I take, I take crazy mad photos mm -hmm. because you just don't know if you're going to get back to sure. a collection. So I would say for this project, I took over 5,000 photos just with <laughs> my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I haven't told anybody that. I, <laughs> oh, the, no, that's okay. No one listens to this podcast. So that's all right. <laughs> so I'm I'm telling you something that yeah. I'm, I'm not sure the, if it's a good or a bad thing. Just the two but, of us. Um, mm. <laughs> and then I t I do actually dictate notes uh, about what I see, um, depending on the situation, uh, how someone is set up. Um, I try and take measurements that I can, mm -hmm. whatever I can get at the time. Then I will print out a base photo and write all my notes on that page. Mm -hmm. So I use, I've got, I put together three binders. I'll bet. For I, this. And the, I find I, the binders I can flip through. So those, that's my technique. Yeah, those big binders too, not the small binders. That the, yeah, no, these uh, are the, the three inch binders. Yeah, the three inch um, binders. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just and then you sort through them and resort according to what you decide your sort of plan of attack yes. for writing. Yeah, yeah. So I, so if a shoe has you know some of the most beautiful shoes have absolutely no provenance, mm -hmm. you know, and so I might use those as an example to show a type. Mm -hmm. But I didn't spend a lot of time if they don't know you know if we didn't know who wore them or who made them where they came from because that. You know that didn't for me personally it didn't engage well, with you're losing a piece of the actual part of the history yeah. of the well shoe. that's that's so, an interesting uh, an interesting difference there between say purely say decorative art history and the right. sort of history that you're trying to do your history it might be about yeah. shoes but you're also really interested in the people whose feet fit in the shoes um exactly not, yeah exactly and in fact i think it's fair to say you know it is about shoes, but it's not only about. I mean, it's really it's not, not just about shoes. You don't have to love shoes to read this book. No, this I don't is, this book is about the, this is a book about the people that stand in shoes. I mean, that's right. Yeah, and uh, we can all. And I think the thing about it that's that is helpful to us today is how you know we can all, all relate to that. If you have mm -hmm. a, a day and your feet are killing you, <laughs> you know, you know because your shoes don't fit right. Um, and then you think of, uh, you know, someone who's working, a, a 1760s girl who's working in a shop and walking everywhere. Um, you know, you can, you, can under, you can understand what people are going through. Or if you've got bunions. I, I can't tell you how many people have written to me um, because of their own current foot ailments. And they see a comparison to the shoes that, that I'm writing about. Really? Yeah, where heels were cut, you know, examples of shoes where the heels were cut down uh -huh. so that they were no longer a two and a half inch heel, but they were flat, uh -huh. perhaps because somebody was no longer comfortable wearing high heels. Maybe it was the fashion changed. There are a few different reasons that, that I see that. Um, anyway, sorry, as I say, I could. Yeah. Um, so one uh, couple theoretical things I'm thinking about the past uh, thinking about the past questions after all this is historically mm -hmm. thinking so uh, we should <laughs> ask those questions um, I was uh, struck one of the pleasant uh, things about the book was it, it seems to me that many people who talk about material culture and and the people who teach tour guides are stuck in 1899 with Thorsten Veblen and the theory of conspicuous mm -hmm. consumption. Um, mm -hmm. And that people buy shoes like this, like Martha Washington's purple shoes, um, mm -hmm. because they want to show off. And God knows yeah. people buy things to show off. We know that. But what right. I love it, about the book is you can believe that you believe that, but you also believe you obviously appreciate these things as beautiful. 
and mm-hmm. believe that the people who wore them and embroidered them also appreciated them as beautiful. Uh, why is That's it so right. hard to walk and chew gum? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I, I'm saying. I, think, I do. They're not mutually exclusive. I no. mean, I, I think that, I think it's one of the things I, I, I we tend not to give, for example, often historical figures a lifespan. Mm-hmm. You know, we freeze Martha Washington later in her life as, you know, slightly maybe plump, you know, yeah. woman. Right. But, we, but we don't tend to think of when, you know, it, when she was a widow before she remarried George Washington, that she was buying herself jewelry and it's very expensive textiles. So, you know, the best of what she of what she could. We don't often give people sort of lifespan. And I think in the same way, we don't often give people lives. If you had one good pair of shoes or two decent pairs of shoes, you probably had some other shoes that you wore on a more regular basis to save your good shoes, Mm -hmm. you know? And, but also I think what is conspicuous for someone else or, uh, you know, at an elite level, um, there's some red Kalamanko shoes in the book, uh, red wool shoes that were worn for a wedding in 1765. And, they're very nice, well-made shoes, possibly made in England. But they weren't just, we know they weren't just worn for the bride's wedding. She wore them for probably for church or other special events because they're stretched. Mm-hmm. And they've been, you know, they've all been a all, little bit altered over time. So, and I think a lot of us can relate to that today, too. You know, you buy something that's nice for this occasion, but it doesn't mean you're never going to wear it again. Mm-hmm. And so I think this idea of how we wear our clothes, because you buy one example of something, doesn't mean that your whole wardrobe is decked out like that. Right. And even those who were middling sorts, you know, one of the things I'm fascinated by, and it, it's very hard to get a handle on, is the secondhand clothing market. Um. In every auction house, uh, Garish's auction house in Boston, um, uh, oh, I'm going to forget the name of the auction house up in Portsmouth at the same time, but they have their big fancy auctions out front. And occasionally you'll see a reference in their advertisements to all the secondhand clothes in the back room, hmm. sale per usual. And so we know that there that there are clothes that are being sent from England and Ireland um, and that come over and are being sold as secondhand. Well, this allows people uh, who are not of the highest socioeconomic status to maybe buy something that's a little damaged, a little out of style, mm-hmm. fix it up, buy a piece of ribbon that you can attach to you know, to a cap, a bonnet, or your coat, something to help you buy into that sense of feeling fashionable. Mm-hmm. And and these are small ways of doing that, but clearly had a, you know, a sense of importance and, and identity. There's even this, I found fascinating. There's a, 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 a position called a translator who took old bits of shoes, you know, uh, bits of heels and vamps and would re, make them to make a newish pair of shoes really they still they did, still didn't look new because they were all these somewhat mis- mismatched pieces <laughs> but they could be passed off as something that would be you know yeah. decent, and you wouldn't pay much for them the other thing about secondhand clothes if you bought your hand your goods at secondhand um auctions you didn't pay uh any sorts of if there were import duties mm-hmm because they were used. Huh. That's fa- and that's another what I loved in that ad that you just quoted it's per usual. And I yeah. I, I want to scream no, no to explain everything because we really want to find out about this, <laughs> you know, 200 and some years <laughs> later. It's not per usual at all. It's very interesting, but okay. Yeah. Um that's a whole, <laughs> it, it opens up a whole new part of their existence that otherwise yes. we wouldn't think yes, about. It does. Um, so as we're wrapping up, I, I just as I've tried to do a little material culture in the classroom, um, mm-hmm. mostly showing pictures. 
I got some of those bags of artifacts, quote unquote, from Colonial Williamsburg years ago. Um, yes. like, there's like a, a, a lady's pocket or a, a soldier's haversack. And uh, then I, uh, you know, yeah. I, I put salted them with some stuff, you know, that I had picked up and just to try to get students thinking about the stuff in the, in the past that you can touch. What are some of the things that you have, that you've done in a history class, um, to try to connect material culture to the rest of, of history? Sure. Well, I have a, a few things that I I do. Um, one of the things over the last, I don't know, five or so years, um, I actually purchased just little fragments, teeny pieces of some of these silks and linens and and um, uh, woodblock printed cottons. Mm-hmm. And I bring them in to class and have the students touch them because you know, how many of us touch a heavyweight silk, like something in the, like the Rebecca Taylor Biles gown. Mm -hmm. And so there's a tactile aspect of that, but also then we can talk about production. What do you see here? You know, so, so that's one thing that I've done. And it, and now that I've been doing it, my friends and colleagues just send me little off bits and stuff. So I've got a tremendous collection that I use. Um, I've also had the good fortune uh, to ha- – I have a, a whole slew of archaeology items that I tie into um, thinking about how domestic house works. So I have you know, like these 50 items from a privy of, hmm. at my uh, a family house. The privy was taken down. These were all found on the site. And you notice – you know, I have the students look at it, and they notice there's a predominance of blue and white types of – Ceramics. So huh. we talk about what might that indicate about purchasing styles. N- note: um, Look for privy. Okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> and then we talk about Asian export, and you know, and some. But you know, when, there are a few things I've actually done with shoes that um, that are really, really that have been rather effective. And so, one of the things that um, that I've done in the classroom is actually um, ask people what's the first pair of shoes they remember Hmm. and that that they remember wearing and then why. And that's sort of, I, I guess what I, what one things I will always thank shoes for is I have a tremendous amount of social anxiety. And so I can talk to you about shoes, something like this forever. But if you want to put me in a party (laughs) to talk to people, it's like I'm a nervous wreck, but I found that if I can turn the conversation to shoes very quickly. Everybody has something to say about shoes. That's a, what it, they loved, yeah. what they hated, everything. And so in the classroom, so I'll, also, I'll often say, so everybody look under the table. What shoes are you wearing today? You know, why are you wearing those? That's a great and, question. Um, you know, and it's just really, and it's really simple, but it gets people started talking. And then if you bring in, and so what's the first pair of shoes do you remember? And I've got, mm-hmm. you know, young women who say, oh, God, I had to wear these horrible Mary Janes. Or, you know, and boys saying, oh, I had to wear these shoes to church. But it connects right away with, with these topics. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's something that I find effective with, with um, older crowds, what I often say, uh, particularly um, – when I'm talking to women audiences, because I do a whole thing on the history of high heels, is they'll say, how many of you are carrying a pair of shoes around with you that you'll probably never wear again, but you just can't get rid of? And three quarters of the audience will raise their hand. (laughs) And so then we unwrap that. What does that mean? Why is that? And then how does that compare with collecting these items as as family mementos? You know, so... I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but those are some things that I like to use to those get people think. Those are great. Um, uh, I just a final question. Um, it's there's been a lot of uh, well, I I think amongst 18th century historians, uh, it's fairly settled that what we like to think of as the consumer revolution of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, oddly, well, it's funnily enough, a colleague of mine who sort of made his bones in writing an important book about the, the 19th century, the late 19th century 
consumer and credit revolution, he kind of sneers at this idea. And I think other people um, uh, who study that p consumer revolution kind of still think it's a little laughable that we talk about a consumer revolution in the 18th century. But never mind, there was, so there, um, yet, <laughs> yet, it wasn't, if, if, what would be strange about that consumer revolution from the, our present perspective? What would be, I think, well, what would be different? I can, I, I, one thing I thought is the modification, there's still a culture, I thought, what, one, one thing that you indicated to me is there's still a culture of handicraft while at the yeah. same time there's a consumer revolution going on. It's a very strange juxtaposition. Right. Well, I actually, if you don't mind, I, that's something I know that we were going to talk yeah. about. So maybe this let's, let's be, finish up with that uh, because because it's something that I found to be incredibly important. I mean, this idea you purchase shoes that are the latest ones from London, and you know, and you're very excited, and you see the ads for that. But what happens? What what starts to change? You know, how do Americans actually make their footwear their own? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing, and I don't, I don't think I've said a lot about this in the book, but one thing that I've really been thinking a lot about is there's no court culture. So the idea of wearing what were known as court pumps, you know, three-plus-inch heels that you would have worn at court, um, is, not, is not something that women here need. And although I can't, I have no statistics, it seems to me that most of the shoes that I've looked at um, are about a two to two and a half inch heel. Hmm. American women tended to buy shoes of a slightly lower heel. I've only found a few pairs where that where we have very very high heels that have an, a relationship with being worn by women in this country. I'm sure there are more, but but overall, this is one thing that I see that starts to change based on the American circumstance. Um, they're also, again, it's like this idea of lifespan and 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 things being static. Just because you bought a pair of shoes from London in 1750, if the textile was still good, it didn't necessarily mean that you weren't going to alter it to your satisfaction. And so I have found shoes, particularly once you start getting into the 1760s and you start having the non-importation agreements, um, that women hold on to their shoes hmm. and they make them do. You see repairs, you see even details that we find impossible where a shoe that maybe had a pointy toe is changed, is actually sewn into a round toe. <laughs> so it still keeps up the fashion, but you're not buying a new shoe. <laughs> you're not breaking the non-importation agreements. You may recover the top of your shoe. I've seen shoes where they've altered the shape of the tongue of the shoe. Hmm. Um, so, so there's these changes, and I think in a way it ties in um, with my chapter on uh, Ben Franklin and John Hose and the repeal of the Stamp Act, you know, where Franklin's last words um, under after at the end of his questioning and I'm paraphrasing here but he's they ask him well what is what was the pride of the Americans and he said it used to be to wear you know British clothes <laughs> and they said what is now the pride of the Americans and he said to wear their old clothes until they can make new ones and at least in the the literature that I'm looking at right now you know, you're starting to see this happening obviously in 1764, mm -hmm. and it's just going to increase over time. And so you have all these shoes in this time period from the mid-1760s until the end of the Revolution, where women are very frequently altering what they already had. It didn't mean they had to give up what they already purchased, mm -hmm. but they altered them to make them theirs, to keep them stylish and to not necessarily to break these agreements. Certainly, I find that in New England shoes at any rate. They, they were expressing independence through shoes. Exactly. And in fact, I've got a whole um, uh, part, uh, part of the chapter is on, on patriotic purchases. Mm -hmm. How you're, you know, a woman from Lynn who uh, is accused of buying tea from a shop and uh, 
and violating the non-importation agreements. This is in Boston. And her husband um, realizes that they're being slandered, actually takes out an ad in the newspaper. And there's a reference to this in my book. He takes out the, an ad in the newspaper, and he said, oh, no, 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 we did not do this. I don't know why we're, this is happening. I will testify before you know, a, a, a judge. Um, my wife was just there picking up shoes from Lynn. Hmm. If you were picking up shoes from Lynn, Massachusetts, you were showing your support of local business and supporting the non-importation agreements. So that's a huge difference between purchasing tea at Jackson's shop and buying shoes from Lynn. (laughs) My guest today has been Kimberly Alexander. She is author of Treasures Afoot, Shoe Stories from the Georgian Era. It is published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. And let me suggest that it would make a highly unusual present uh, for someone who's interested in fashion and shoes. It's almost... Pretty enough to be a well, it is pretty enough to be a coffee table book. It's just much smaller and uh, will fit in an apartment easier than a coffee table book. So think about that, uh, Kimberly. Thank you for being on Historically Thinking. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.